0: So I figured I would use my own notes here. Um, I was actually literally just teaching on these earlier today. (laughs) And um, I wanted to use these in part because I want to explain what Catholics do and don't believe about Mary. And the reason we have such a devotion to Mary is because we believe firmly that God used her to write with divine poetry into history itself. And it was Mark Twain who said, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it has a tendency to rhyme. Well, we firmly believe that God showed the majesty of his divine poetry in Mary because she makes such a beautiful um, poetry. She she fulfills stuff from the Old Testament. She points towards stuff at the end of time and all stops in between everything in the Old Testament. Lots of that stuff was pointing directly to her. And of course, she is unique amongst all Christians. So, um, let me first say, I don't expect that you're going to watch this and just all of a sudden be like, Oh, I totally get it. You know, Mary's great. And go hand me my rosary beads and let me start praying. Now, that's not the point of this video. The point of this video is just to explain a lot of the scriptural basis and the philosophical basis behind what we as Catholics believe as Mary. Um, we believe that she is unique, absolutely and utterly unique amongst all of human beings of all from all time. Mary is the only person who it can be said... She is the daughter of the Father. Uh, She is, sorry, I just plugged in my phone. (laughs) She is the daughter of the Father. She is the mother of the Son. And she is the spouse of the Holy Spirit who overshadowed her and impregnated her. So she is utterly unique in Christian history. And we have a devotion to her precisely because what she does, who she is, tells us so much about Jesus. And so in this, these are my notes. I was just teaching on these literally earlier today. And like eight hours ago, um, we're going to discuss a couple of points. Mary is the mother of God. That should be kind of a given. Mary is a saint and the first Christian. Mary is the new Eve. Um, Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. Um, Mary is the Queen of Heaven. Yeah, really? I'm going I'm to go there. Uh, and then Mary is our mother. Because all of these things are in Scripture. And all of these things point to the uniqueness of Mary as she points to the amazingness of Christ and the miraculous work of God. Right? Um, now, let me also say this. You don't have to have a huge Marian devotion as a Catholic. Um, in fact, now, I, I'll tip my cards a little bit. As a, as a Catholic, you'll probably wind up saying a rosary or saying a Hail Mary at some point. You'll go to confession. The priest will like, go say a decade of the rosary. You'll go to a, go to a funeral beforehand, and they'll be praying a rosary or something. You'll, you'll probably say a few Hail Marys as a Catholic. But it's a private devotion in general. Um, and it's something that, other than asserting the dogmas uh, or the teachings of the church, that she safeguarded for 2,000 years. And again, I'm going to show these to you um other than that you, you don't have to pray to Mary. You don't have to pray to the saints. But she is a licit avenue of prayer based on things we've already established or at least attempted to establish. I'm not going to establish those here. The, the short version is uh, we know that those who've gone before us are aware of us in some capacity. We know that they can present our prayers to God. That is scriptural. Uh, and so based on that, the very first Christians consistently had a practice of praying uh, and asking the saints to intercede for them in the same way we would ask each other to intercede for us except for we know that the saints in heaven are righteous. Um, we can go a lot further into that in another video um i mean again the church actually has secular scientists come in and verify there's no medical way to explain miracles that happen that are used in the canonization of saints so we actually have scores of miracles that happen to this day that most people never even look at but non-catholics come in and verify them which is really kind of cool and that's how we know the saints are never anyway this isn't to talk about saints. so this is just to talk about mary so what makes mary so unique well jesus himself said that uh, of those men born of women No man holier has ever lived than John the Baptist. That's Jesus in words about his kin. John the Baptist said about Jesus, I'm not fit to loosen his sandals. But Mary, one of my favorite icons of Mary, and I think I just lost the internet, so I'm recording this in a different way right now. One of my favorite icons of Mary. It looks similar to this, but it's, you know, your more traditional icon. And it always has one of Christ's sandals hanging loose. And I didn't even understand why that was. And one day I was just looking at that, and I had just gotten through reading um, that passage where John says that about himself, and it clicked Like, this is the woman who taught Jesus to tie his sandals. She probably tied and untied them 10 times a day. I've got five kids myself. I have done my fair share of sandal tying, let alone diaper changing, let alone, I don't nurse my kids, obviously, my wife does. But, um, you know, Mary was in charge of all of that. She took care of Jesus uh, from the get-go. She wiped his holy little bottom, right? And that should should sound scandalous when I say that. She wiped the very bum of God. But Jesus humbled himself and became one of us in all ways, except sin. And in becoming one of us, he became liable to everything, including death, but also needing to go to the bathroom, right? And he needed and wanted a mother. And of all the people he could have chose, he chose Mary. Now, we also believe that Mary is, uh, oh, so oh we call her the mother God. I think that, again, that's not super contra, um, contradictory. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, sorry, it's one of those days I've been going nonstop all day. Uh, controversial. <laughs> It's not super controversial to say she's the mother of god, at least to most of us, because that was established early on in church councils uh, that she is, in fact, the. Theotoko, so the God-bearer, uh, there was a question about whether she just bore Christ, and, and and those questions came about because we were curious, you know, people were wondering, you know, and using some scriptures, um, depending upon what, which question we're trying to answer, and when it happened, people would point to the scriptures, New Testament, Old Testament, and say, well, clearly Mary just bore the human nature of Jesus, or uh, Jesus, you know, they would say Jesus was not fully God, or Jesus was not fully man, or whatnot, but we believe, and you hold to this belief, I'm almost sure, that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, defined in counsel as the hypostatic Union because a bunch of Catholic bishops sat down and made this decision years ago right (laughs) that's what we believe we also know um, so therefore Mary bore Jesus Jesus is God so Mary is the mother of God all right moving that past that obviously this is not equating Mary with being prior to God God the Father etc she's still just a human creature right all of that is true we are not trying to put Mary up any higher than she should be but we are trying to recognize just how high up she is because it's God's poetry it really is and that's every every catholic who speaks about mary at the end of the day is speaking out of love for jesus and love for his mother they're they're speaking because they see this divine poetry so let's keep going mary i've made this point on this board uh before but mary is arguably the first saint uh and she is definitely the first christian right she accepted jesus into her heart before anybody else could right and not just into her heart but into her womb right she bore him uh and nursed him and wiped his whole little bum and everything we just said right uh mary's the first christian even before the name christian came about right mary was the first person to accept the gospel the good news and so in that sense she's actually the first member of the church she is the proto-church uh just as in adam all men fell and in jesus all men are raised well so too eve became the mother of the living and so too uh in mary she is the mother of the church she is the first of the church in the early church you made this in fact that's my next point down here so we're just going to jump right into that mary is the new eve this is where the poetry really starts coming in we see all the way back in genesis a good and loving god who creates Um, The world good He pronounces it good In in the creation accounts And he creates man in his image Male and female He makes them right And so in the image of God He created man Male and female He created them And it was good Be fruitful Multiply etc we end the second creation account. There are two of them um, that are slightly different, which lets us know that these aren't necessarily meant to be literally true, but they are actual history. They are true, um, just not literally true necessarily. Uh, kind of like if I said the football team slaughtered the other team, right? You're not expecting body parts on the ground. Uh, they're using poetry to explain a real truth that happened in primordial history that all of humankind was bound up in one man, and in that one man, everybody fell. So... Um, So after the fall, we get this weird line in Genesis 3.16. You've probably heard it. You're probably aware of it uh, because it definitely points to Christ. Um, And God tells to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her seed and yours. He will strike at your head while you will strike at his heel. There is so much in this little verse that points towards Jesus and Mary that I didn't even realize, like the hundredth time I read this, I didn't quite recognize what I was seeing, right? Um, From the beginning, we actually see the virginal birth because her seed and yours is a phrase that makes no sense biologically. Uh, Men have always been viewed as having the seed, literally the Greek word semen just means seed. If you're a farmer, you're out scattering your semen in the field, but it's not gross. It's just, it's what you do as a farmer. (laughs) Um, And so the very fact that God speaks of the woman Putting enmity, we'll come back to that phrase too Enmity between the woman and the the serpent And we know that the serpent is the ancient The dragon is the ancient serpent who deceives the whole world We see him in Revelation We're going to come back to that too in a minute right? Um, But he says, I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed and then she sa- he says, you, "He will strike your head while you strike his heel." Obviously, this is a reference to Christ, but it goes deeper to that too, because literally, it's foreshadowing Christ's death. Because what happens when a snake, a venomous snake, strikes you? If you strike his heel, if you if you crush him with your foot, you you step you step on his head with your heel, you've killed the serpent, right? But if he, at the same time, strikes your heel as you crush his head. He struck you too, and you're going to die. And so this was actually foreshadowing not only of the virgin birth, but of the very passion, death, and ultimately resurrection of Jesus because this was promised as a way to bring about the ultimate death of the devil of, of sin itself of, of of the lord of death in a sense right uh and so all of the early christians they saw this and they kept making these allusions and these parables to mary being the, the new eve mary is that woman and we know this because we for a whole bunch of reasons first off the virginal birth and everything else like literally she's the mother of the one and her seed crushes that of the serpent like clearly this is mary that's who was promised all the way back in genesis 3. Mary is that woman and actually she's actually given this title multiple places in scripture and you've probably never noticed them before um in in the very beginning of Jesus's ministry uh, he is actually Mary is invited to a wedding and Jesus is invited along with him as well as some of his disciples and I it's one of my favorite stories in all of scripture they come to Mary not to Jesus. And and I don't know why they come to Mary. Because if maybe Jesus had done some miracles before. I don't know. But I, I doubt it. Because literally the whole argument that he has with Mary here is about that. Uh, they come to Mary and say, hey, we've run out of wine. You know, this was a party supposed to be going on for multiple days drinking wine. Of course, Jesus makes the best wine that the world's ever seen for people who have already been drinking for a couple of days. Which tells you that God has no problem with a little bit of uh, uh, festive drinking, we'll just say. Have a little wine for the sake of your stomach as St. As Paul says. But anyway, they come to Mary. And they say, we have no wine. And she tells this to Jesus. And and Jesus, being an obedient Jewish son who would not break the fourth commandment unnecessarily, says to her, woman, what is this between you and me? My time has not come yet. Right? He addresses her as woman. Why? Is he being a, a disobedient son? No, he is hearkening back to this woman, the woman woman my time has not come and Mary like a good Jewish mother immediately turns to the (laughs) to the stewards and says do whatever he tells you to do right she doesn't even address him because she knows that he will be obedient and he is and it's because of this miracle that people start to believe in him so literally Mary is the reason that Jesus uncertain that this was the time to do it started his ministry he obeyed his mother because he was a good Jewish boy, and she knew what was coming. It was prophesied her heart would be stabbed with a lance. That's from Simeon, right? Uh, that's that's in the scripture. She knew what was coming, and yet she told him, "Now is the time." Mary is that woman, and again, when Jesus is dying on the cross, we see this in uh, I think this is in John's Gospel, um, and I'll come back to this as well. When he's dying on the cross, at one point he looks down and at the foot of the cross are a bunch of Marys <laughs> uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary's mother, and also John the beloved disciple. And he, in that moment, turns to Mary and John and says, Woman, behold your son, son behold your mother. And from that moment, the beloved disciple took her into his house. We're going to come back to that in a minute because that actually shows that Mary is our mother as well. But just for the moment, in his dying words, he doesn't say mom. He doesn't say Mary. He says woman. In his dying words, he gives her that title again, woman, behold your son. And then we're told that the beloved disciple takes Mary into his house and cares for her, right? And also she takes John into her care. She becomes like a mother to him, right? Well, we know Again, this title, Woman, points to Mary all the way back in Genesis 3, but it also points to Mary in Revelation 12. And I know you're going to say, no, that's a symbol. It's Israel or whatnot. Understand this. In Revelation 12, we see, um, I don't have internet, so I can't pull it up. Shoot, I don't have my Bible. Hang on just a second. I'm going to pause for a second. All right, well, I have most of the passage here anyway. So it starts off, a great portent, a great sign appeared in the sky, and a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was with child and wailed aloud as she gave birth to a son. She gave birth, excuse me, she gave birth to a son who was destined to rule all the nations with an iron rod, right? Um, And then we read a little bit further here. um, The dragon chases after the woman. And the woman flees into the wilderness, etc. There's a heaven, there's war in heaven. Michael and his angels are fighting against the dragon, etc. Uh, etc. Et so we, we see three main people, three main entities, four if you count Michael, uh, in this passage. We have the woman, we have the child, and we have the dragon. And we have Michael, but don't worry about him. Um, we know that the child is Jesus, just is, right? We know that the dragon is Satan. So both of those are personalized individuals. What does that tell you about the third person? And we know Michael's a person too, right? He's an individual, right? Michael the Archangel. Um, If three out of the four are people, it tells you that at least on some level, the woman clearly is who she seems to be. Mary, the mother of Jesus, the woman who was foreshadowed all the way back in Genesis Three and not only that. Again, just as Eve became the mother of the living, and this Mary was foreshadowed, uh, who would who would bear the one who would crush the head of the serpent, she's the mother of all of the living, right? She is the woman. She is the woman, and Revelation makes this very very clear, right? Um, and, and Paul's very clear on this too. In fact, Paul repeatedly calls Jesus the new Adam, right? Uh, he calls him the new Adam, the new man. Uh, and he says, just as, you know, death uh, came through one man, so, you know, uh, in, in the last Adam, the last man, uh was a life-giving spirit. Just just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, so too death spread to all because all have sinned. If humanity were to be rescued from the consequences of the first transgression, there must be a second Adam. And if there's a second Adam, it makes sense there's a second Eve. And the, and the entire early church meditate on this is it Who is the Who is the new Eve? Well, the Eve is the bride of of. Old Eve is, is the bride of, of Adam, right? So the new Eve is supposed to be his bride. you me like, well, wait a minute. How is Mary Jesus' bride? Well, again, if she is the first of the church, then she represents that bride almost perfectly. But there's also other uh, divine poetry or divine symbolism there. So in, in the beginning, Adam is created, and then Eve is created from him, right? So it comes Adam first, and then Eve. And the serpent attacks this way. So it goes to Eve and said, did God really tell you not to eat of any of the fruit of the tree? And eventually she eats and gives it to Adam, who's with her. And because of that, sin comes through Adam. Well, Jesus and Mary are just the opposite. Mary comes first in a sense, right? Um, obviously, Jesus pre-existed, et cetera. I'm not denying any of that stuff, right? Understand what I'm saying and not. <laughs> don't, don't catch me on a technicality of language. Mary came first. And out of her came Jesus. And it was, it was just as it was Eve's disobedience. And in fact, I'll read this passage here from one of the early church fathers in 155 AD. This is Justin Martyr who died for his faith. He was part of the, the, the Martyr Church. And he's trying to explain the faith to, to a Jew named Trifo. He's trying to explain this. And he keeps likening her to Eve to make this point. So just as through the disobedience of Eve, uh, sin entered the world through Adam, so through the obedience of Mary, life enters the world through Jesus. So Mary and Eve, in a sense, came first, or they, they acted first in, in a real way. But the effects that they affected ultimately comes through the new Adam and the old Adam, right? Adam, Adam, and, and, and Jesus, the Christ, right? So there's this really cool parallel that happens between Adam and Eve and Mary and Jesus. And this is what the early church father said. This is, you know, about 100 years after, after Pentecost. He became man by the virgin, order that the disobedience which proceeded from the serpent might receive its destruction in the same manner it derived its origin. For Eve, who was a virgin and undefiled, having conceived the word of the serpent, brought forth disobedience and death. But Mary received faith and joy when the angel announced the good tidings to her, that the Spirit of the Lord would come upon her and the power of the highest would overshadow her, wherefore the holy thing begotten of her is the Son of God. And she replied, Be it done unto me according to thy word and by her has he been born, to whom we have proved so many of these scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, refer, and by whom God destroys both the serpent and those angels and men who are like him, but works deliverance from death to those who repent of their wickedness and believe upon him. So we see in Mary divine poetry. We see the the downfall of humanity in Eve totally overwritten by the obedience of this simple woman in in mary the new eve and we see her the woman in heaven bearing the son who ultimately defeats the great serpent the dragon right that is what that is all about so mary is interwoven in a similar way to the way jesus is obviously he's far more important to the story but even mary is interwoven all throughout the scriptures. And we see this in lots of other places as well. One of the titles that the earliest church had for Mary was the Ark of the New Covenant, why? Well, we know that the Ark of the Old Covenant was the type of thing that uh, was very important to the Jewish people. And the principal thing that I would point out, and these are my older notes, I have newer notes somewhere that actually, I write this out better, I need to find those. But this will do for now, especially because I still don't have internet. Uh, so I can't access my other notes right now. Uh, that's life, right? Um, we know this, the the Ark of the Covenant, carried in it three things. The, the the law of the Lord that came down from heaven, uh, written by his finger on the stone tablets, right? That Moses went up the hill, went up the mountain for. It also carried, a, I think it was a golden jar uh, containing the bread that came down from heaven. And also uh, the staff of the high priest. It was Aaron's rod that would bud and shoot to show that he had the, the power and the authority, right? And we know that in scriptures, we're told that wherever the ark was, you know, there was God, he was dwelling of it. Uh, we know that, that when God is leading him through the desert, uh, he would overshadow the ark well luke picked up on this and i think he emphasized this in his gospel quite a bit um there's a lot of ways we can point this out one of them is just to bear in mind what did mary carry in her womb right well she carried the bread come down from heaven the true bread she carried the one true high priest and she carried he who is the fulfillment of the law in the new covenant he who makes everything else new again he who fulfills the old covenants and points to the reason why they existed in the first place. And of course, just as God overshadowed the ark, so too we're told that the Holy Spirit will come upon Mary and overshadow her and the thing born of her will be called holy, the child, the son of God. However you want to read that translation. But Luke actually presents a parallel, and this is not a very good layout of it because I did these 12 years ago. Um, but the, the short version is if you were a Jew in the first century, you would have picked up on this um, because it is pretty apparent when you see that he actually mimics the movements of Mary and the mimics the movements of the Ark with David. And, of course, we know that Mary is bearing the son of David, right? Uh, Jesus Christ, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, and so we see from... David exclaiming, how can it be that the ark of the Lord should come to me? To Elizabeth saying, how can it be uh, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? David arises and goes to the hill country of Judah, and Mary arises and goes to the hill country in Judah. And the ark of the Lord stays in the house, in the hill country of Judea for three months. And Mary stays with her kinswoman Elizabeth for about three months. When Mary reaches Elizabeth, um, or when when the ark of the Lord enters the city of David, Saul's daughter Michal looks down and she sees David leaping for joy and dancing for the Lord. And we know that when Mary arrives there as well and she meets Elizabeth, um, Elizabeth says, Behold, when the voice of your greeting came to my ears, your voice, the babe in my womb leaped for joy. And so Luke actually makes this really interesting parallel, but there's another parallel that's even better. I pointed out Revelation uh, 11, or sorry, 11, uh, 12 earlier. Well, let me jump back one passage. I do have internet on my phone here. And Revelation 11, remember that for like four or 500 years before this, the Ark had been gone, uh, and the Jews would have been very, very intrigued to know where the Ark was. And so verse 19 of Revelation 11 says this, then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of his covenant was seen within the temple in heaven. Uh, and there were flashes of lightning and, and peals of thunder, voices, earthquakes, and And uh, heavy hail, right? So literally, it seems like the Ark was assumed into heaven. It was taken up um, at the end of its usefulness on the earth, which was about 500 years or so, give or take, uh, Jesus becoming human. And if you were a first century Jew, you would probably be very intrigued to know what happened to the Ark. But the literally, the, the next line is where we just started reading. And then a great portent appeared in the sun. Or appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun with a moon under her feet and a crown on her head so literally john in his revelation is seeing juxtapose the image of the ark of the covenant and mary the ark of the new covenant, and so we see in the the pre-Nicene Church, uh, Hippolytus writes, she was the ark formed of incorruptible wood. For by this is signified that his tabernacle was exempt from putridity and corruption. Of course, the ark was you know uh, made in gold and and made of, of acacia wood, and so it was meant to be it's like really really hard like teak or oak or whatever. Um, it was meant to be a long lasting thing, and it was so holy that most people couldn't approach it. In fact. Um, It was so holy a Jewish man named... um, no, it's was, it was not Uzziah. Uh, I probably have it in the notes here somewhere. I think I have it in the notes. But anyway, um, he actually goes to touch the Ark because it's starting to fall. He's trying to save the Ark, but he wasn't a Levite. And when he touched Uzzah, his name was Uzzah, U-Z-Z-A or something like that, A-H. And when he touches it, he drops down dead. Now, obviously, this doesn't happen to everybody. Um, in fact, the Philistines at one point capture the Ark and they don't drop down dead, but they do get uh, a plague of uh, something. One of the translations I've read that I love, it just makes me laugh a lot in that passage in, in Samuel, is they get a plague of of hemorrhoids and in fact they have to make statues, golden statues of these hemorrhoids and, and give the ark back to the Jews in order to appease the God of Israel and, and, and have this plague leave them, right? I love that. It's just it's just funny. But anyway, um so the early church saw this, right? They understood that Mary in fact was fulfilling in a real way. She was what the ark itself pointed towards. And in the same way that Jesus is what the Passover pointed towards, right? Um Etc. So we also know Mary is the Queen of Heaven. Now, this one is one that people absolutely go crazy about. Why in the world do you Catholics say these things? Well, bear in mind, Jewishly speaking, Davidically speaking, the king oftentimes had multiple wives, right? And not only did he have multiple wives, sometimes he had hundreds of wives and even concubines. Solomon, I think, if I recall, had, was it like 700 wives and 300 concubines, which I've never understood. I can understand having 700 wives, I guess. I can understand having 300 concubines, I guess. But I can't understand having 701 and 300 of other. That just seems a bit ridiculous to me. But anyway, <laughs> I, I digress. The, the queen, Davidically speaking, and I can give you a whole bunch of other passages for this if you want. But Davidically speaking, the queen was the mother of the heir. And when the king died, the queen became the queen mother right? So she was the queen. And in fact, we see that Solomon treats his mother with great affection. He brings out a chair. She sits at his right hand. People intercede. They ask her to intercede on their behalf. And she does. It doesn't always work out well, but she actually fulfills his role. She actually intercedes. So Davidically speaking, the mother of the king is the queen and Jesus is the king of all kings. So it is absolutely fitting that we should understand that Mary is the queen of heaven. And bear in mind also what Mary says in her Magnificat um, when she rejoices in all that God has done for her. Let me pull this up. Hang on. So one of the uh, one of the lines in the Magnificat is, He has cast down the mighty from their thrones, and He has lifted or elevated the meek. He has, he has elevated the humble of hearts. When the angel comes to Mary and tells her she's going to bear a king, the son of David, she would have known and probably been gobsmacked by the idea that she was going to be royalty. Like literally that is implied in that very notion. You're going to be the mother of the king. If somebody told you you're going to be the mother of the king. Now, obviously, in medieval kingdoms, we don't see this as much. There's still a little bit of this in, like, uh, the, the British royalty. They have the, the queen mom or whatever. But, um, Davidically speaking, that's just what it meant. You would have known, I'm going to be the mother of the king. And, of course, we see Mary. Again, Revelation 12, the woman crowned with the 12 stars, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, representing the 12 apostles. She is primarily Mary. She can also be uh, representing Israel. But she can also be representing all of humanity right? Because all of humanity, God has been bringing about this reconciliation. And Mary, just as Eve becomes the mother of the living, so Mary becomes the mother of all of those who are living in Christ. And we're going to get back to that here in a minute, because he actually, John is explicit about this in two places, um, but probably places you've not seen before. Um, so we know that Jesus, the King of Kings, and Mary is his mother. People actually come to her and intercede, just like they did, um, in a sense, with um with, with uh, Solomon and his mother, right? So we see that Mary is the queen of heaven because Jesus is the king of heaven. He's the king of all things. And so while it seems like extreme poetry to use, we use the poetry because it helps us better understand who Jesus is he is the king of all things and you can just say that and you can understand most of it but the deeper you go into this and you see how god has formed his plan it makes such a huge difference it helps you appreciate jesus even more if you saw if you saw a painter and he was standing next to his painting and you go up you say i love this painting i love what you did here i love the colors i love the way it makes me feel i love everything about it do you think he would be upset and be like uh i painted it Why why are you why are you talking about the painting right? No, absolutely not. By praising the handiwork of God, we praise God. By praising Mary and her role in our salvation, she's not our savior, right? And I know you're going to hear a lot of lines like mediator, mediatrix. We can come back to that stuff later. I'm not going to mess that right now. Um, trust me when I tell you, it doesn't mean what everyone keeps telling you that it means. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. Um, but if the rest of this makes sense, then at least you can, you can take it with a grain of salt for the moment. And understand that, Catholics are expressing poetic love towards Mary because it helps them deepen their love towards Christ. So we know that Mary is, just to recap, the mother of God. Uh, She is the new Eve. She is the Ark of the Covenant. The entire early church saw this. Uh, We see that she's the queen of heaven, and she's also our mother. Where in the world do Catholics get this idea that Mary is our mother? Consider what we just talked about a little bit ago. When Jesus is dying, and his last words are to give to Mary, John, the, the beloved disciple. And, and John says this, he says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near her, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Now, John does something really weird that none of the other evangelists do. And he calls himself often the beloved disciple. And that really gives us three questions or, or, or three three ponderings of why he does this on the first place maybe john is egotistical he's like jesus loved me the most punks (laughs) i don't think that's likely and i don't think you do either um the second is it could just be truthful right jesus just loved me more i was the beloved disciple and i think that's possible uh he might have been just very fond of john for whatever reason but it also could be and likely is allegorical i think john is actually being humble and he is removing himself from the gospel this is one of those times where we're supposed to see ourselves in his place right because he removes himself from the context and he says woman behold the son son behold your mother and the disciple took her into his own home from that time so the disciple whom jesus loves the beloved disciple takes mary as his mother all right interesting But what does that really have to do with us and Mary? Well, let's go back to Revelation 12 and let's talk about that woman one more time. And let's point out something that maybe you've not noticed before. Uh, I'm going to have to pull this up here. Hang on just a second. I'm going to pause. All right, so in Revelation 12, the very last line of it is this. The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commandments and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. So the woman's children follow Jesus the woman's children follow Jesus and that woman is primarily Mary and the woman is given to the beloved disciple to be their mother I can go further. This is already like almost a half an hour, actually over half an hour. I want to stop here. Obviously, we can talk about the assumption. We can talk about Mary ever virgin. We can talk about Mary, uh, the the Immaculate Conception. All of these things flow from who Mary is. You know, actually, let's talk. About, I'm going to keep going. You can watch this at double speed. You can skip this. I'm not saying you have to watch the whole thing. Um, but let me talk about at least a couple more of these things. The ones I really care about uh, are, of course, the the Immaculate Conception, uh, and then I'm going to talk about the the ever virgin, because this is one that everyone on this board keeps kind of going on about, and. Obviously, I'm probably not going to put the definitive nail in the coffin here, um, but I'm going to try. (laughs) I'm going to give it a shot, right? And actually just posted some of this stuff to you uh, in, in the group here, right? So we know that Mary, it was conceived without sin. This was defined in 1854. That's a long time. So why did the Pope just invent this in 1854, right? He didn't and that's just not how church councils work that's not how ex cathedra statements work what happens is whenever there is a discrepancy whenever there is a distinction or division and people are starting to doubt something that is true that's when the church steps in and says no so we see it in the early church with defining the very nature of jesus fully god fully man fighting against the heresies like like arius and his heresies we see it with the canon fighting against guys like uh, marcion who was rabidly anti-jewish and was trying to remove from the the books that were circulating about jesus any reference he made a, a lighted or redacted copies where he's trying to get rid of any reference to the jews um which made for some really weird reading right um it, it happened in the 13th century when the church tried to define you know what is uh what is the lord's supper what is the eucharist right and and she she uses a term she borrows a term to, to better explain the concept a transubstantiation we can talk about that in another video too but the point is these are things that were already believed And the church puts her foot down and says, no, let's clarify because people are starting to doubt, right? She is safeguarding the deposit of the truth. And this is one of those truths. And the church in her wisdom, the Holy Spirit guiding the church in its wisdom, in his wisdom, decided that this is something that it was good to defend. And ultimately, I think it is. This does not refer, the immaculate conception does not refer to the virgin birth of Christ, uh, though he would have been immaculately conceived as well. Uh, literally, immaculate means without spots. So if you have macular degeneration, you have like spots in your vision, right? Macular degeneration. So immaculate just means without spot or without stain and we can actually find this implicitly again in the angel's greeting to Mary uh, every other place in scripture where an angel meets a person the person usually falls down and worships the angel but here the angel greets Mary and he he greets her with a royal salute kaire kai tomine right kaire means hail and you can see this because when the roman soldiers mock jesus there's Kyre, kaire hail king of the jews right so angel gabriel says kaire kai chari tomine and He's addressing her as though this is her name. Now, you'll see this translated in lots of different places in lots of different ways. Uh, everything from Full of Grace, which is based on what Jerome did, uh, uh, Grazia Plena. Um, everywhere from, from Jerome's uh, Grazia Plena down to Favored Daughter. Which I hate because the word daughter is not even in there. And in fact, in Greek, the word we get in English for daughter comes from Greek, dugater. It literally is the same word. And it's not in that sentence. So anybody that says hail, favored daughter, or whatever, they're clearly just reading the wrong thing, right? But he gives her this name. And again, I don't want to go all crazy into Greek, but uh, this is this is a perfect past participle of karito, uh, which means to be graced, and so uh, being uh, the past participle means one who has been past or one who has been graced in the past, and being k, uh, being being a um, perfect past participle. What it really means is, and again, Greek words just work differently than English. One who has been perfectly graced in the past, such that the effects of that gracing ripple into the future uh, indefinitely in time. Right. That's literally the name of Mary, and the angel greets you with this as a title: Hail, Kikarito Right, He is telling us that she has been graced in a unique way. Now, Mary still rejoices in God, her Savior. She still needs a Savior. But she's just saved in a slightly unique way. Because Mary is slightly unique, if we haven't established that already. <laughs> you can save someone from a pit by pulling them out of the pit. And that's what Jesus came to do, in a sense. right? But you can also save them from a pit by pointing out the pit and moving them around it. Or making a bridge. <laughs> and preventing them from falling in the first place. And when, when Jesus saves Mary, um, because it's fitting... He does so simply by preventing her from falling in the way that all other humans have. And this fits so many different reasons for all the different archetypes we've already talked about, right? Mary is the new Eve. Well, the new covenant, supersedes the old covenants right and if the new covenant began with two sinless persons and then humanity fell it makes sense for those two people we know jesus is sinless you know it makes it makes no sense poetically for mary and adam i'm sorry for adam and eve uh to be sinless and jesus to be sinless and mary to just be a sinner right it doesn't make sense it doesn't rhyme in the way that you would expect god to make it rhyme. clearly that's not a proof in and of itself but gosh you know look for the rhyme look for what makes sense uh, but we also know Mary is the new ark, and the ark was so holy. There he is, Uzzah, uh, touched, it, and the Lord slew him. That's how holy the ark was. You, you had to be a special, sanctified person most of the time, if you knew, at least if you were aware, in order to touch the ark. Um, obviously, I just re- re- replied to this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, sure. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that. Uh, we see all of Jerusalem going out when, when clearly that wasn't the case. Um, there's lots of different places. I gave you a couple in, in the passage um, that I uh, I posted. So here's that, First uh, Corinthians 15. In Adam all have died, and in Christ all shall live. This proves that all doesn't necessarily mean every single one, because first off, not everyone died in Adam. We have uh, definitely Elijah, and it seems like Enoch as well, who were taken up into heaven. And of course, not everyone's going to go to heaven. Jesus seems pretty clear on that. Uh, so it, it seems that pontes here doesn't mean all as well. Let alone, again, in, in Mark 1, 5, all of Jerusalem went out to hear him confessing their sins and they were baptized in River Jordan. Clearly that doesn't mean all. Uh, Paul says, you know, many were made sinners, not all were made sinners. He uses the word poloi, uh, not pontes. Paul is, uh, is he contradicting what he said elsewhere in Romans? Of course not. Paul is simply trying to show that everyone is subject to original sin, but not all reject god um so and again i gave you this example i said imagine you know in the most extreme case where and this is actually probably what's most likely this is actually what the church i think really teaches on this is in all of humanity there was one single person outside of jesus who was sinless it wouldn't matter if you can say all of jerusalem went out when it was only a third or a quarter or a fifth or a tenth or even half Right, you can say all of Jerusalem went out. Then you can easily say if ninety-nine point nine 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 percent of humanity has fallen, you can say all of humans have fallen and mean it the way that you mean it without it necessarily implicating Mary. Um, but we can still go further than that, right? <laughs> and of course, we have the um, all of the other things that that have been said about her. Um, we also have you know, the, the, the witness of the early church This is origin in a homily uh, Obviously you know, this just shows that the belief was there I'm not saying origin is the, the one Greatest source for anything But he even says the virgin mother of the only begotten Of God is called Mary Worthy of God, immaculate of the immaculate The one of the one This is a belief that was persistent in the early church uh, Ambrose uh, who is the one who actually helped uh, Augustine to, to convert Says Mary, a virgin not only undefiled But a virgin whom grace has made inviolate Free of every stain of sin uh, this is, you know, three to eight. Now, this is the post Constantine church, I'll, I'll admit. Uh, but clearly, we see reference to this early, early in the Christian tradition. I'm not going to worry about the assumption. Uh, we know it can happen. Jude even presents something from the book of Enoch uh, where we see matt uh, Michael and the devil arguing about the, the body of Moses. We've seen Elijah go up to heaven. We know when Jesus died, the the graves are open and the righteous in Jerusalem appeared amongst people. And then when he resurrected, they went up to heaven. So clearly there's at least a basis for this. Um, All I would say, as far as understanding this is um, there is an early Christian tradition about this as well. Um, And, one of my favorite proofs of this is the fact that the early christians love relics um oftentimes it would happen when someone would die they would take the bones and they put them in a tomb they'd sit there for a year and then they'd take them out and they put the bones in what's called an ossuary or bone box and then eventually the christians would actually split up the bones uh and and transmit them to different places because they had a real passionate belief in relics and this comes from the scripture as well uh we see like cloths and handkerchiefs from paul being taken to people even peter's shadow people line up just so his shadow will touch them because they would be cured by his shadow uh to of course the woman who touches the hem of jesus's garment right so we we see miraculous healings coming about through various uh, relics and things, even in the, the New Testament. And so the Christians, the first Christians just carried this to its logical end. And we have relics of 11 of the 12, well, 10 of the 12 apostles. We don't have one for Judas. Um, and we don't have one for John, who died in exile. Uh, but we do have one, or we don't have any for Mary, right? And the early Christians, they loved relics. So if they could have found Mary's body, you guarantee they would have found it. And then we have a couple of things. And again, I'm just going to give these to you You can pause this and read it if you want. Um, These just talk about... whether or not she died. So this is Epiphanes in 377 saying, I don't maintain that she died. Did she die? We don't know at all events. If she was buried, she had no carnal intercourse, meaning she didn't rot into the ground uh, or she remained alive since nothing is impossible with God. That's 377. Uh, about 200 years later, we see Gregory of Tours uh, saying the apostles now he, he's relating a story that is passed down. He's not teaching this, but he's relating a story. He says the apostles took up her body on a bier, placed it in a tomb they guarded expecting the Lord to come and behold again the Lord stood by them and the holy body having been received, he commanded that it be taken into a cloud into paradise. We're now uh, rejoined with the soul. Mary rejoices with the Lord's chosen ones. So you don't have to believe that this happened. Uh, this is just historical context. It says it's not a new concept. But again, there's enough biblical evidence that shows it can happen that, you know, if we have the fact that it can happen and we have some early testimony, it certainly at least makes sense. And then, of course, we have Mary contrasted with the ark that appeared in Revelation. It seems like the ark was assumed into heaven, and it was immediately shown uh, juxtaposed with Mary. And later on, in, in in Revelation twelve, the woman is given wings so that she can flee the devil, who represents the devil, or flee the dragon, represents the devil and death and hell and all of that stuff. Uh, and so it seems that that even points to her uh, being able to be uh, assumed in a sense, uh, pre- preserved from the uh conquering tyranny of death we'll just say and then let's just talk about the ever virgin and we'll stop there um because this is one of my other favorite things to talk about this has been going around on this board nonstop, and i don't expect this to be um once and for all like you get it and it's just done i'm sure nobody's even gonna watch this to this point i might take this video chop it up and make shorter videos <laughs> but there's a handful of things that people keep raising they keep saying first off uh joseph knew her not until she bore a son right well the word there for until haos just simply does not mean that after this fact it happened uh we know that you know, looking at uh, the septuagint uh we read that that saul's daughter mccall was childless until after she, after her death uh she obviously wasn't childless after her death or she didn't have a child after her death so she remained childless until her death is really what that means but we also have lines in scripture that says you know jesus must rain until all of his enemies are, are made his footstool right until till every knee shall bend that doesn't mean he's going to stop raining afterwards right so the word until simply doesn't mean anything necessarily other than up until that point it can mean things happen afterwards but it doesn't necessarily and we have plenty of scriptural evidence for the fact that that word just doesn't mean that i can give you a lot more if you want but there's there's a couple just off the top of my head um so that gets rid of Matthew 1. It says, Joseph knew or not, until she bore a son. Uh, and again, Matthew's concerned primarily with just establishing the virgin birth. He's he's not trying. First off, it, it's, it's a mistake to expect the first century Christians to try to explain all of the things that they thought were a given, right? They didn't think they needed to explain the perpetual virginity of Mary. They simply... Um, they, they took it as a given right and we'll see in a minute um in fact you're going to see that that angels uh mary's response to the angel shows that this was a given right and they they assume that if you read this you would understand that but let's let's talk to the other things first jesus was her firstborn this clearly when people bring this up they don't understand the old testament because the firstborn was simply a title applied to the first son born to a couple there were a specific set of mosaic offerings that had to been given that's why they go and they present jesus when he's eight days old at the temple they sacrifice the two doves etc um the brothers of the lord that we keep hearing about um we know first off we know that the word adelphoi can mean literal brother obviously but it can mean uh, a a relation right a, a cousin somebody that you're you're close to um it doesn't have to mean a a literal brother uh neither biblical hebrew uh nor aramaic had a really good word for cousin obviously greek does and we do see that in the, in the, the scriptures but it was so ingrained in them just to speak of someone who is your kin as your brother um lot is called abraham's brother all the way back in Genesis, and we know that being the son of Haran, which is Abraham's brother, um, Lot would have actually been Abraham's nephew, right? Um, in Luke uh, 22, at the Last Supper, Jesus tells Peter, the first pope, <laughs> he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has, de- has demanded all of you to sift all of you, But I have prayed for your faith, singular, that it may not fail. And when you turn back, because he knew that Simon was gonna deny him three times, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Now, he's not saying go back home and strengthen the people you're directly related to by blood. He just means your brothers, your apostles who are here. And in fact, in Acts we see that there's a gathering of Jesus's brother that amounts to about 120 people. So either Mary was very, very busy, or the word brother just is being used poetically here and it is it's just the case that's being used but consider this there is not a single way to explain this if if you if you understand this Um, when the angel comes to mary and he says hail kairi kekai to he greets her and then he speaks in the future tense you are going to bear a son right you will bear a son now any normal person who was betrothed so we think of today there's engagement and then there's marriage obviously back then betrothed was like engagement and then um, marriage was marriage obviously when you went to live each other but you were more than just engaged because that's why that's why Joseph makes the move to, to divorce her quietly right uh, Joseph uh, being a righteous man didn't want to uh, submit her to to scandals he moves at least initially to um, divorce her quietly um, but mary clearly understood where babies came from right uh because she says how can this be and most translations render this weird and i don't like it because the greek literally says um man i do not know mary clearly understood how the birds and the bees worked because she says how am i gonna have a kid i don't i don't know man right so she clearly understands you know man that's where kids come right um but if she's engaged to Joseph and planning to have a marriage like what most people would expect, then she should have said, oh yeah, with Joseph, my wife, or my, my husband, right? Or my soon-to-be husband, my betrothed. And, hang on. The angel tells her, you know, you're going to bear a son in future tense, and he's going to be the king of kings, son of the God, you know, all the stuff that he says in, in Luke 1. And if Mary was pondering how can it be that I'm going to be the mother of the king? How am I going to be the queen, right? Then she wouldn't have said, how can this be since I don't know man? She would have said, how can this be? (laughs) How is it that I'm chosen to be the mother of the king, etc.? She doesn't say that. She says, how can this be since I do not know man? Luke knew that she remained a virgin, because she is the spouse of the Holy Spirit at this point. The 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 Lord overshadowed her, right? And they're trying to tell a story to people that, hey, I got miraculously pregnant while I was engaged, <laughs> and then I popped out six more kids later, right? Your people are gonna have a really hard time believing that. That's not that's not lock and proof right there. But seriously, consider that for a minute. Right? Think about how people would view a claim that, oh, the first kid was, was a miracle. The rest of them were totally normal, right? Especially in this time and day. And bear in mind also, the, the New Testament is very, very clear that celibacy is a good thing. It's also clear that sex is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. In fact, in the Catholic Church, we understand that sex uh, that, that marriage is a sacrament and the form of the sacrament is sex. So when a man and a woman make love as husband and wife, they get grace from God. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Literally, you know, we we elevate sex more than most people realize. It, it, there's two views of Catholics: they're they're prudes and they, they think sex is bad and dirty, or they're sex fiends and they just want to have all kinds of crazy sex, right? And it's really it's, it's the happy middle. You know, it's it's in the middle. We understand sex in its context, right? But giving up a good thing for the sake of another good thing is a good thing, and Paul makes this very clear. As does Jesus. Jesus praises those who he says, you know, some some men have been made eunuchs by others. Snip snip, um, but He says, some men choose to become like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Whoever can hear this should hear it. So he's recommending celibacy. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, and he says, you know, I wish that you would be like me. I know that you can't. So for most of you, I recommend having a wife. But he's recommending celibacy. And in fact, later on, he speaks about an order of widows. uh, And this order of widows, he says, don't let younger widows enroll, because if they all of a sudden burn with passion and they want to have a husband, they can't get married or they'll violate their first vow. Well, the first vow isn't their marriage because he says that they can get married, right? So it's not violating the first marriage vow. They're violating a oath of celibacy. So we see in the very first decades around Jesus, this is clearly a concept that people were familiar with. And then we have this concept um, that we do have a writing from the first hundred years or so after... after the time of of jesus and the apostles and pentecost so it's around 120 130 ad or so and it's called the the infancy gospel the proto-evangelium of james now this is not scripture i'm not claiming it scripture i'm not using it as an authority and saying hey you have to believe it because this this hidden scripture over here says that That's not what i'm saying but what it does show is there was a common belief in the early church. And in fact, the Protoevangelium James, as well as the letter of Clement uh, to the Corinthians, And The Shepherd of Hermas were widely received in the early church and many people read them at the churches as though They were scripture along with like Paul's letters and some of the Gospels There was doubt about other things and we can talk about the canon later too. I'm not trying to get into the canon But it's just an interesting factoid to know about right Um, And so this this gospel this gospel was widely received and kind of viewed like it was a historical context and what it tells us is this Joseph was a widower and in the time of Mary and Jesus, there weren't orders for widows. And so for the most part, there were a handful of people. Uh, Anna, the prophetess, uh, remained a widow all of her days. Um, that's another use of the word until, by the way. She was a widow until she turned 84, whatever it says in Scripture. And it doesn't mean that she got married all of a sudden. It just means she she died, right? So there's another use of the word until, not meaning after the fact it happened. And um, oh, I just totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> Hang on just a second. I need to take a drink. Anyway, so this uh, Protoevangelium, what it does show us is there was a common belief in the early church. And the early church believed that Joseph was an elderly widow, widower who had been married before and whose children had were still alive. His wife had died. And there was a, a common group of people uh who were basically consecrated virgins and for the first 14 years or so of their life they would go and they'd serve at the temple these young girls and until they became ritually impure because of course they all of a sudden had their period and then they would leave and a lot of times they would remain virgins the rest of their life but there wasn't an order there weren't you know monastic callings and 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 monasteries and convents back then and so what they would do is they would find an elderly widower and they would get married but they would get married and she would take care of the things of the house so he wouldn't have to do that because he had to be out working all day. And he would provide for her, right? And so we actually have a, a, a early 2nd century witness that says this is exactly what happened with Mary and Joseph. Now, that could explain some of that. The brothers of the Lord, you know, being his half-brothers or or whatnot. Um, there's certainly ways we can understand that. I'm not saying that you have to accept the Proto-Evangelium as gospel by any means, because I don't. Um, but it shows that there was this belief in the early church that mary was a perpetual virgin and i think the linchpin in my opinion is luke's gospel uh what she says to to the angel because there's no other way to make sense of how can this be since i do not know man she knew how babies were coming. She knew she wasn't pregnant yet. Uh, She knew how it happened. She knew she was about to get married. She should have said, oh yeah, with Joseph, my betrothed. Even if she was planning to have like a consecrated virgin relationship, if God tells this to her, she'd be like, oh yeah, with Joseph, my husband. But no, no, no. Literally, she's like, how can this be? I do not know man. Andros Uginosko, right? I don't know man there's no way to make sense of that outside of this understanding that was implicit in the early church and all of the early church fathers write about mary uh and call her the the virgin uh they write about her perpetual virginity and everything else so this is a belief that has been with the church forever uh since the very beginning so now that we've done all this just to kind of recap we love mary absolutely we love mary and we love her because of who she is She is the mother of God. She is the queen of heaven. She is the first saint. She is the first Christian. She is the new Eve. She is the Ark of the Covenant, right? She's all of those things, and she is our mother. She was given to the care of the beloved disciple, and she is the mother of all of those who the dragon wages war against. From this day forth, all generations will call me blessed, for the Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. I hope that this helped. I I hope that this, you know, at least paints a picture a little bit of who Mary is and how Catholics honor her. We are not confusing her with God. We are not worshiping her at all. And we are not trying to, you know, take the focus off of Jesus, but rather we are trying to better understand Jesus by understanding Mary the same way you would better understand an artist by understanding his painting. God bless you.